Are you an accredited investor looking for a new opportunity to generate passive income and build the retirement of your dreams? Then elevate your investment game with Viking Capital, where wealth meets wisdom. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, Viking Capital can help guide you towards financial freedom through passive real estate investing. With strong and transparent underwriting, Viking identifies low-risk opportunities with the goal of preserving investor capital and maximizing long-term growth potential. And their accessible and responsive investor relations team will help you understand how each investment will impact your unique financial goals. With $800 million in assets acquired, more than $230 million in equity raised, and more than 5,000 units under management, Viking Capital is your path to early retirement. To learn about Viking Capital's latest investment opportunity, which is available for you right now, visit go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best. That's go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best to get started today. Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, Promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. It's not really 100% passive. You've got to do the work to find the right GPs. Once you find the right GPs, okay, then it can probably be pretty passive, but you got to put in the work first. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest, Rohan Jahar. Rohan is joining us from Austin, Texas. He's the founding partner of JT Capital, which focuses on 120 to 400 unit apartment complexes with below market rents in Florida. Rohan's portfolio consists of being a GP on 5,000 units and an LP in multifamily, self-storage, industrial, and short-term rentals. Rohan, thank you for joining us. And how are you today? Pleasure to be here. Doing great. How are you? Very well. Thanks for asking. Rowan, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So my brief background is that I was born and raised in Michigan, went to Michigan State, graduated a degree in finance. I originally went the corporate route, so I'd worked at GE, some of their entry-level finance rotational programs, went on to some more of their accelerated leadership development programs that get you on the executive track. 
held a variety of strategic, operational, finance-type roles. From there, I went to go work at Facebook, so spent some time there, again, in very similar roles. And then after some time, decided that I wanted to go do my own thing. So you took a variety of paths, but ended up doing real estate, particularly in multifamily. And, you know, that's the genesis of what we do today, which is real estate private equity. JT Capital is the firm that we run and we do multifamily, as you had mentioned, looking for properties that have below market rents, running a value add business plan and executing our business plan, delivering returns. All right. There's a big journey between we do real estate and being a GP on 5,000 units. Take us through that course. Yeah, definitely. It kind of started when I was at Facebook, just wanted to have a path to where I could really do what I want, had full control over my time, how I'm spending it. And really just knowing that the best way to achieve a certain level of wealth is own a significant portion of equity. So I had first looked at a a variety of things. I looked at, hey, maybe I could run Domino's franchises. I looked at maybe I could become a software engineer, maybe a product manager, but eventually I landed on real estate. What I did is I thought that it would be a good idea to go buy single family houses in college towns. And I think that college will be around for maybe a decade or so. So you have students that go in these college houses, their parents co-sign, they sign 12-month leases, but they're typically only there for nine months. It sounded like a good investment. I knew one person that was close to me that was in real estate. I brought the idea to them. They had said, don't do that. Instead, look at larger multifamily. So I took their advice. I started looking at larger multifamily. What I did was I realized, okay, I need to get my foot in the door here. I understood the economies of scale and why it would be a better idea to start bigger. So I said, let me figure out how I can apply my core skill set and go help somebody. So what I did is I underwrote 100 deals in 30 days, just going to broker websites, downloading OMs, financials, things like that. I packaged up all my work, presented it to the person that gave me the advice. And I said, hey, look, I'm sure you spend a lot of time doing underwriting. I can do it because... I know how to do financial modeling and I've picked this up over the past month. Surely there's a lot that I can learn within it, but like, here's what I can do and kind of how long it takes me. And he was like, this is great. Absolutely. Let's do it. So I did an apprenticeship for him for about a year. Through that, I met a couple of my partners. We started doing JV deals together and then we brought it under one umbrella. But just throughout that, it's just been core blocking and tackling doing one deal after another. I love that systematic approach. What was your first deal that you did? The first deal is one that I was a partner on, again, with my mentor. It was 300 units in Florida. We raised about, I think it was roughly $17 million. That one was a very similar strategy to what we do today, which is find a property. That one was built in the 1980s, renovate a portion of the units, things like granite countertop, tile backsplash, LVP flooring, so on and so forth. I'll raise rents throughout the whole period, either refinance or sell. And we had sold that one and that generated double digit IRR, which is aligned typically with what you would look to see in, in that type of asset class. Do you do full renovations or do you leave a number of units unrenovated for the next person? Each deal is different. I would say it's probably maybe 70, 30, 70% we're renovating a portion of the units, 30% we're doing everything. It really just depends on what the strategy is on that deal. I think there is something to be said for kind of leaving quote unquote meat on the bones so the next person can come and 
say, okay, I've seen these guys prove out this business model in this case study. Now we can do the next thing. Alternatively, the other way to kind of sell these things is, hey, we've done everything. Now you can bring it up to the next level. Or it's just a different type of buyer who's like, okay, the business plan has been realized. I just want this for steady cash flow and tax advantages. Yeah, I absolutely love the 100 deals in 30 days. And when you break it down, it's three deals a day. So anybody can do that. And it shows your assertiveness. It shows your enthusiasm and your initiative. So what a great way to impress others. $17 million raise on that property. Were you involved in part of that raise or all of it? No, very small amount. Mostly what I was doing was the things like underwriting, help with due diligence as we got into it, asset management, things like that. I invested some of my own money. I had a friend that invested 100K or so. One of my strengths was that just coming from Silicon Valley and working at these companies, I had a network of people who said, look, I would love to invest with you. So I knew I had a significant amount of capital that I could bring to the table. However, they said, I know that you've been successful in one thing, but I don't know what you've been successful in as an entrepreneur or in this new type of industry. So I would rather see you partner with people, or I would rather see you have some type of success in this before I invested with you. And all it really took was a couple of deals before I was able to convince those people, I've gotten enough experience here. We have aligned incentives, things like that. Your criteria is 120 to 400 units in Florida. That seems like a very specific niche. Why is that? For us, I've always just found being laser focused on one thing is the way to do it. If I want exposure to different asset classes, I would rather be an LP in those other asset classes and finding the very best operators and investing with them. I think having a very niche focus allows you to take advantage of compounding over time because you just learn so much rather than being broadly scattered across a variety of asset classes. It's kind of tough to go very deep. For us, we found that the 120 is the minimum level that it takes for the numbers to make sense for us, both from an absolute value dollar standpoint, as well as just the economies of scale and unit economics you get on the P&L on the property. And then 400 is just kind of, again, the maximum amount that we feel that we can compete strongly in today's market. Rohan, you're also an LP investor in several different properties. Do you still invest in other people's deals? Yeah, I LP in a variety of real estate asset classes, various funds, whether it's venture, crypto, so on and so forth. And then it would do a little bit of angel investing just direct into startups. In terms of other real estate classes, where have you seen the highest returns? Probably self-storage and industrial. It really does depend on the operator. In some of those asset classes, I'm looking at people that might be pursuing these asset classes in a differentiated lens. That's one piece of it or they have some type of unique advantage that maybe not everybody else in that market has. But these real estate asset classes have been on fire the past decade, and then even more so the past few years. But yeah, self-storage and industrial have had the best. From a risk return, risk profile perspective, I felt like depending on the market and exactly what vintage industrial and probably multifamily has been the safest. So playing devil's advocate, why not dip your toes as a GP in self-storage or industrial? Yeah, I just don't know enough. I think that, like I mentioned, I'd like to be laser focused and niche on what we do. 
because I want to be known as the best operators in, let's say, class B plus and A minus value add and core, core plus deals in Florida and in Austin, Texas. Austin, it's very tough to make the pricing work. We don't do a lot of deals here anymore. But in Florida, let's say, me and my partners, we want to be that team. Self-storage is interesting, but again, I go look and I see what other people are doing in self-storage and I say, I can't compete with these folks. They've been spending time. They know exactly what's happening. And for us, I've felt that it's best for us to just stay very laser focused. What kind of debt do you typically put on these properties? It depends. Historically, we've done agency financing through Fannie or Freddie. More so over the past 18 to 24 months, I'd say it's been private. That's just been more competitive than agency. We've found ways to mitigate risk in certain instances. So when you're going private, it can be a little bit more risky. And so we do things like purchase interest rate caps that are more conservative than what may be required by a lender. We'll set aside mortgage reserves, either contractually required with the lender or just by ourselves, anywhere from six to 24 months. But it depends on the type of debt. More so, we've been doing private. I could see us switching back to agency, just given where the market is at right now. How long can you lock in a rate for? It depends. Each deal is different. We've done some that are, HUD, for example, we're doing like 35 years. For some of the private stuff, it might be like three years with two one-year extensions. Average might be five, seven, 10 years. And your thoughts on rising rates? Yeah, it's interesting. There's so much that's out of our control. Right before we got on this call today, Chairman Powell announced another 75 basis point increase. The way that I think about it is a few different ways as a mental model. So one is that right now there's a lot of dislocation in the market. I think what buyers want and what sellers want, there's probably been no more separation over the past handful of years. Sellers still believe that they should be getting cap rates that were happening in early 2022, late 2021. Buyers are looking and underwriting these deals and saying, hey, my carrying costs just went up 200 basis points. There's no way I can do that. So you're seeing a lot less offers on deals. Having said that, the rent growth is still there. So some people are able to still go negatively leverage into these deals because they say, okay, I'll bank on the rent growth, right? Because it's been pretty significant over the past couple of years. That works until it doesn't. And when it doesn't, then you could be in a lot of trouble. So the way that we think about it is that we underwrite deals every day. We just have to focus on deals where hopefully we can find ones where the bid ask spread is very low and we have a unique advantage of being able to go after it. So that's how we think about it. If you look at the interest rate futures market today, people are forecasting we get to three and a half by the end of the year. And then the Fed starts lowering it next year. But we're not interest rate forecasters. We'd probably be bond traders then. So we just try to underwrite deals and buy ones we can. When you underwrite them, is your exit cap higher than your entrance? Yeah, definitely. Each deal will be different in terms of the amount of basis points spread that we have per year. So on average, it might be around 50 basis points exit. That's been historically... But going forward, we might need to re-underwrite those and make it a much higher spread. And your time at Facebook, what hacks do you have for real estate people in terms of marketing their businesses or themselves? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I don't know if these are specifically from Facebook. The one thing that I found is that 
writing online can be one of the best ways to put your thoughts out there for the world and allow yourself to get inbound. I don't do any outbound to any investors. On Twitter, there's real estate Twitter community. It's a pretty significant amount of people now. And I've been able to cultivate a great community there. And I just put a lot of my thoughts out there. I write a blog. And through all of those sources, I have people that will ask me, hey, I'd love to invest with you. I'd love to learn more about GT Capital, those kinds of things. Most of our investors and referrals comes through our previous investors and referrals. These are people that are Indian uncles who started investing with us in the very beginning. We delivered returns for them and it grew through word of mouth. But then it's like last year uh, or a couple of years since I found this real estate Twitter community, I'd say maybe like 10% or so of our investment dollars comes from people that I met on this platform. And I've met a lot of people in real life from Twitter, which is great. Um, so I don't know if it's specifically from Facebook, but I think writing online is great. It allows you to get scale, put your thoughts out there in a very organized way. You really have to think through exactly what you're saying makes sense when you're writing it, because when you're writing, that's when you begin to clarify your thinking. You can't just have a run on sentence. You need to end a thought. You need to make sure that these things make sense. And people will always dig into it, especially on Twitter, if you say something wrong. Yeah, you will get some feedback on Twitter for sure. (laughs) You mentioned college will be around for 10 more years. What are your thoughts on that? I have one controversial statement whenever people talk about college or universities, which is I think college is likely one of the largest Ponzi schemes in the United (laughs) States. The amount of student debt is staggering. The fact that basically anyone can take a loan to go to college for any type of degree is pretty mind-blowing when you step back and think about it. If any of these things were not subsidized by the government or being directly given by the government, no one's underwriting these loans for some arts degree at some liberal arts college, right? And I'm sure there's people that have gone on to be successful, but generally speaking, those degrees are very worthless in the real world. So I think there's been certain dislocations that have happened, things like Lambda School, which was a startup, which was training people how to be software engineers. So they were taking people that had a job at McDonald's, training them how to be software engineers, getting them jobs at some of the largest tech companies in the US and increasing their annual salary from 20K up to 120K. So I think there's certain types of things that are happening and will continue to happen as we get innovation around education and venture capital dollars that go into that. But I think it's just not sustainable where we're at. I think likely top universities will continue to stay around. There's just legacy and that it's very hard to break that. But I would imagine over the next 10 years, we'll probably see likely the most number of colleges go out of business relative to what we've seen in the past. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's three-hour Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $2 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars twice in the last 20 years, and he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and real estate investors like you. You can learn more at danacornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, 
Go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever and enroll today. And right now, best ever listeners, you can enroll for over $500 off. Go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive Investing investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. I was nervous when I was applying for my very first car loan, but I had a hundred grand in student debt that there was no question if you're going to get approved for that. Interesting take. You're very systematic in everything that you do. How have systems helped you scale your business? Yeah, systems are the underlying foundation of our entire business. So the way that I think about typically any business, as long as it's not like an early stage startup, is that you want to be able to create an SOP for every type of process that you have in your business, particularly for these things that are repeatable or can be automated or delegated. So the way that we think about our business and the way that we thought about it from day one has been every process that we run or every task that we do either needs to be automated or delegated. And just every day, core blocking and tackling, we've either automated or delegated a task. Through automation, certain types of software you can use. For example, we use Zapier a lot in our day-to-day work. Outside of that, what we've done is hired either executive assistants or virtual assistants that we've created SOPs for virtually every task in our business where a lot of the back office is either automated or delegated in that way. What that allows us to do is one, build a very sustainable holding company or operating office. If you look at Berkshire, for example, they have only five people that are truly running things, which is Warren, Charlie, Ted, Ajit Jain, and then Greg Abel. So those five guys, outside of that, they just have a bunch of administrative assistants. And we've kind of taken inspiration from that, done the same thing. It allows us to work on higher value tasks. It allows us to have a lot of time to sit down and think and read things. And it allows us time to just be able to enjoy life, spend time with our families, those kinds of things. I love that mindset, automate and delegate. What is the hardest lesson you've learned in real estate? Probably two. One is uh, always read all of your documents. I think there's so many contracts and documents that happen in real estate from the very first stage when you're putting down an LOI all throughout the acquisitions process and to even after that. You need to read all those docs and truly understand everything that's happening. And then the second one is just that you will never change a location. You can change the quality of an asset. You can renovate it. You can make it as nice as you want. But that broader location, you cannot change. So if you go into an asset and you're looking for an area that you believe is going to have a path of progress and you're going to have this great business plan, and as the area gets better, your asset will only get better, 
that may not materialize and you have to understand that risk and what is the probabilistic nature of that risk. Those are probably the two hardest lessons I've learned and ones that I'll probably never forget. Yeah, I think we've all learned to read everything that you sign, even the standard ones that you've signed a million times. There's been nuances in standard contracts that have burned me. So yeah, great advice. Rowan, what's the hardest lesson you've learned about people? I think people generally want to produce great work and do the right thing. So the biggest lesson for me, and it's probably been developed most over the past 18 months, but it's just been empathy. And it likely coincided with the birth of our first child. So I think previous to being a parent, I was probably not as empathetic as I could be. I grew up in these companies where you had to work a lot of hours. You had to be grinding all the time. And that was just ingrained in me of this is how everybody should be operating. And as I've gotten older, work with a lot of different types of people, I've realized that's not how everybody operates. And what you need to do and what I need to do is flex my leadership style to be able to get the most out of specific people based on what they're motivated on. Generally, everybody wants to do good work. You have to find what is the motivating factor for those people to be able to get the best work out of them. Not everybody is going to be working 16-hour days nor should they be because most people are not incentivized to. You have a significant portion of an equity in your business, but they don't, how can you expect them to? So that's just a financial motivation. But yeah, for me, I think it's just mostly been learning empathy for people and that people generally want to produce really great work. You have to figure out how to get the best work out of them. That was a hard lesson for me as well. Not everybody is as motivated as you, or like you said, incentivized. So yeah, great advice. How do you guys find deals today? You're in a very competitive market. Yeah, very competitive. It's nothing crazy. It's just through broker relationships. You built those up over time. Find deals when you're doing your deals. Don't nitpick on things. Do what you say you will, so on and so forth. So quite frankly, we just had to be a lot more patient. Last year, we looked at a thousand deals and we did two deals. One deal was 129 units for 29 million bucks in Orlando. And then we did our second deal last year, which was 336 units for $84.7 million. And that's two out of a thousand. So we're just coming to work every day. My partner's up and he's underwriting a bunch of deals every single day. And we do too. So that's kind of it. One of those was a true off-market deal. The other one was on market. And we just had to get creative with the terms that we were offering. But yeah, just primarily through broker relationships. What was the creative solution? What we did on that one was we negotiated a 45-day closing period versus everybody else was coming in at 60. These guys had some, it was towards the end of the year, these guys would have preferred that we could have gotten it done earlier and so we were able to do that. That's just a testament to working with our property management partner. We use Bell Partners, which is a company that's been around for 45 years, they manage 70,000 units. They cover our entire portfolio. So they were able to get things done really fast. Working with our loan broker through JLL, she is phenomenal. She was able to organize a bunch of third parties on site for us and we're able to get things done very quickly. Our due diligence, we walked every unit, but we're able to get things done in a very quick time fashion. And so those are the kinds of things where you have to do where it's tough to compete on price these days. What advice would you give somebody that's in your neighborhood competing in your market that's just starting out? Good question. How does David battle you know, Goliath? Yeah, exactly. 
I would say you can't, to be quite <laughs> frank. Uh, and I don't mean that to be demotivating. But if you're starting out, generally speaking, you're not going to be buying 120 into a 400-unit apartment complex. But what you can be doing is buying things that are much smaller because that's not going to necessarily be in direct competition with what we're buying, but it's going to be in direct competition with what we're leasing for. So it's tough for me to kind of give advice on what we're trying to do, but if you usually start just doing something and protecting the downside, underwriting a bunch of deals, eventually you're going to find one. Be very specific with your criteria. Talk to brokers, be professional, have great communication. When you're passing on a deal, say exactly why you're passing on this deal. Keep in touch with people, talk to owners of properties, those kinds of things. If you're just starting out, those are the fundamental things that you need to be doing, which is just setting up a system where, okay, every day I'm underwriting these deals. Every day I'm calling this many brokers. Every day I'm talking to this many owners. And eventually you're going to start doing deals. After some time, you'll be doing the 100 to 400 unit. And then when you're competing with me, you'll just pretty much be doing the same thing, but figuring out, okay, how can I look at these properties from a differentiated lens? But in the very beginning, I think those are the fundamental things to do. I don't buy that you can't compete with me argument. So let's say somebody finds a great deal and if they can't compete with you, they present the deal to you. What would a typical finder's fee be? We pay anywhere up until the low to mid six figures for a deal. So it's a really good point you brought up, which is a lot of people are not sure how they can get started and do these bigger deals. What you just said is what every real estate investor on earth, regardless of size, wants, right? You could bring a huge deal to Barry Sternlicht, and he'd probably pay you a seven to eight figure finder's fee. So I think that is a great way to get in, which is similar to what I did with the underwriting. Someone, a higher value task would be someone going to find deals and bringing it to people like me or others and get a finder's fee for doing those kinds of things. Because if you find great deals, those generate tens of millions of dollars of value for investors. Yeah. So best ever listeners, Rohan spent 30 days underwriting a hundred deals. You can go out there and start calling on owners of these apartment complexes that fit operators niches like Rohan's. And if you can find a killer deal, you can have an incredible payday, but listen, it took these guys a year to find two deals. It could take you two years to find one deal. If you're just out there pounding the pavement, But at the end of the day, if you put the time in, yeah, you can get rewarded very nicely for doing so. Awesome. Rohan, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? I'd kind of break it up. So one for LPs is read your PPMs. Uh, Those are very detailed documents. They have everything in there. So I don't know how many people read PPMs. Even for myself, I know, you know, investing as an LP in certain things, like I don't read the full PPM, but that's one piece of it. The other one is Having a systematic checklist for due diligence, I found that some LPs just get on calls with GPs and will kind of just have a good conversation. Like, okay, I like this person. This is great. But there's no systematic like, okay, this is the checklist that I'm going to run through you with on this call. I'm going to document these answers. And this is my checklist that I use for every GP and that I update as I get smarter. So I think those are two things that I would suggest for LPs. It's not really 100% passive. You've got to do the work to find the right GPs. Once you find the right GPs, okay, then it can probably be pretty passive, but you got to put in the work first. And then for GPs, I think it's, again, two things, which is one, always figure out how to protect the downside. Every 
pro forma is going to show up and to the right. There's never been a pro forma in the history of the world that has not been up and to the right. And that's fine, but you got to figure out how do I protect the downside on this deal if things go south and model out those risk scenarios. And then two is just never be a forced seller. You'll likely never lose money in real estate if you're never a forced seller and you're able to be patient. A lot of good points here. One, if the GPs don't stress test their own deals with rising rates or whatever it is, I don't know that that's the right GP. Everybody models up and to the right, but are they actually stress testing their deals as well? If rents don't rise to their anticipated rate, then what? Great point. I'm going to push back on the LP documents. I brought my very first LP investment seven years ago. I brought it to my attorney, very thick. And he's like, what do you want me to do with this? Read it. Tell me if this is a good deal or not. He's like, listen, these things are written so that the GPs can basically do whatever they want other than being malicious or intentionally deceiving you. So is it really worth reading those LP docs? Yeah, it's a good point. I think about it this way in that when you read the LP docs, you get a sense of how does this person operate? Even in your point, GPs can have a lot of leeway to be able to do things. That's okay, but I just want to understand that that risk is there and I'm comfortable with that risk. Number two, when I was kind of referring to about how they operate, when you see how a PPM is written, I mean, I've seen PPMs that have a bunch of spelling errors in there. Things aren't reconciling. Just like the structure of it doesn't really make sense. Okay, it kind of leads me to believe like, who is this person using and should I be trusting their judgment? So I think that's the second point is just like, how is this person operating and how this thing is written and how it's structured? But yeah, it's a good point. You can't really push back on a lot of things because you're one LP out of many unless you're a huge anchor investor, but it's good to understand what is in there and what is the level of risk that I'm taking on? How is this person operating? And also to your point, if they're upfront about fees or if they bury them, right? right? I love the documents where all the fees are clearly listed out. The mm-hmm. ones where they bury them, that's a problem. Exactly. Yeah. Just seeing how these things are written can give you a lot of insight, I think. Rohan, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. All right, Rohan, what's the best ever book you recently read? I read two books within the past month that were really good. One is called Americana, a 400-year history of capitalism or something like that. That one's by Boo Srinivasan. Really good book, just about different technological innovations throughout the history of America, from the printing press to the telegraph, so on and so forth. And then the second one is, I got into golf last year and I fell in love with it. It's called The Four Foundations of Golf, which my friend John Sherman wrote, and that has been extremely helpful for me. Rohan, what's the best ever way you like to give back? We have a framework for giving back, me and my wife. One is to our local community, two is to our hometowns, and then three is just broadly across the U.S. and internationally. I think likely the two biggest impactful ways that we give back is one to this organization called WOTC. They were actually kind of started as a startup. They went through Y Combinator, which is one of the best accelerators in Silicon Valley. They were the early stage investors in Dropbox, Airbnb, those kinds of things. But Watsi, it allows you to fund as little as $5 to people's medical procedures across the world that are living in poverty. So you can literally just go to watsi.org, donate $5, donate $100, donate $200, $1,000, whatever, and pay for people's procedures. And the second one that we do, which I think is the most impactful, is here in Austin, 
we will take kids that are living in poverty and their families can't afford back to school shopping supplies and we'll take them back to school shopping by things like school supplies, clothes, those kinds of things. Rohan, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Probably going to our website, jtcapitalgroup.com and just connecting with us through there. And then I'm most active on Twitter and LinkedIn. My handle is just Rohan Jahar. Rohan, thank you again for your time today, man. We covered a lot. Starting out in Michigan, going into corporate finance. I'm glad you did not start a Domino's franchise. You found real estate. You scaled it. Thank you for all of the advice today. Thank you so much for having me. Best ever listeners, thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share the podcast with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day.